Chapter Five of Tales of Men and Ghosts by Edith Wharton. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Five, Full Circle. Geoffrey Betton woke rather late, so late that the winter sunlight, sliding across his warm red carpet, struck his eyes as he turned on the pillow. Strett, the valet, had been in, drawn the bath in the adjoining dressing room, placed the crystal and silver cigarette box at his side, put a match to the fire and thrown open the windows to the bright morning air. It brought in, on the glitter of sun, all the shrill, crisp morning noises, those piercing notes of the American thoroughfare that seem to take a sharper vibration from the clearness of the medium through which they pass. Betton raised himself languidly. That was the voice of Fifth Avenue below his windows. He remembered that when he moved into his rooms eighteen months before, the sound had been like music to him the complex orchestration to which the tune of his new life was set. Now it filled him with horror and weariness, since it had become the symbol of the hurry and noise of that new life. He had been far less hurried in the old days, when he had to be up by seven and down at the office sharp at nine. Now that he got up when he chose, and his life had no fixed framework of duties, the hours hunted him like a pack of bloodhounds. He dropped back on his pillows with a groan. Yes, not a year ago there had been a positively sensuous joy in getting out of bed, feeling under his bare feet the softness of the sunlit carpet, and entering the shining tiled sanctuary where his great porcelain bath proffered its renovating flood. But then a year ago he could still call up the horror of the communal plunge at his earlier lodgings, the listening for other bathers, the dodging of shrouded ladies in crimping pins, the cold weight on the landing, the reluctant descent into a blotchy tin bath, and the effort to identify one's soap and nail-brush among the promiscuous implements of ablution. That memory had faded now, and Betton saw only the dark hours to which his blue and white temple of refreshment formed a kind of glittering antechamber. For after his bath came his breakfast, and on the breakfast tray his letters. His letters! He remembered, and that memory had not faded, the thrill with which he had opened the first missive in a strange feminine hand, and the letter beginning, I wonder if you'll mind an unknown reader's telling you all that your book has been to her? Mind? Ye gods, he minded now. For more than a year after the publication of Diadems and Faggots, the letters, the inane indiscriminate letters of condemnation, of criticism, of interrogation, had poured in on him by every post. Hundreds of unknown readers had told him with unsparing detail all that his book had been to them, and the wonder of it was, when all was said and done, that it really had been so little, that when their thick broth of praise was strained through the author's anxious vanity, there remained to him so small a sediment of definite specific understanding. No, it was always the same thing, over and over and over again the same vague gush of adjectives, the same incorrigible tendency to estimate his effort according to each writer's personal preferences, instead of regarding it as a work of art, a thing to be measured by objective standards. He smiled to think how little at first he had felt the vanity of it all. He had found a savour even in the grosser evidences of popularity. The advertisements of his book, the daily shower of clippings, the sense that when he entered a restaurant or a theatre, people nudged each other and said, That's Betton. 
Yes, the publicity had been sweet to him, at first. He had been touched by the sympathy of his fellow-men, had thought indulgently of the world as a better place than the failures and the dyspeptics would acknowledge. And then his success began to submerge him. He gasped under the thickening shower of letters. His admirers were really unappeasable, and they wanted him to do such preposterous things, to give lectures, to head movements, to be tendered receptions, to speak at banquets, to address mothers, to plead for orphans, to go up in balloons, to lead the struggle for sterilized milk. They wanted his photograph for literary supplements, his autograph for charity bazaars, his name on committees, literary, educational, and social. Above all, they wanted his opinion on everything, on Christianity, Buddhism, tight-lacing, the drug habit, democratic government, female suffrage, and love. Perhaps the chief benefit of this demand was his incidentally learning from it how few opinions he really had. The only one that remained with him was a rooted horror of all forms of correspondence. He had been unutterably thankful when the letters began to fall off. Diadems and Faggots was now two years old, and the moment was at hand when its author might have counted on regaining the blessed shelter of oblivion, if only he had not written another book, for it was the worst part of his plight that his first success had goaded him to the perpetration of this particular folly, that one of the incentives, hideous thought, to his new work had been the desire to extend and perpetuate his popularity, and this very week the book was to come out, and the letters, the cursed letters, would begin again. Wistfully, almost plaintively, he contemplated the breakfast tray with which Strett presently appeared. It bore only two notes and the morning journals, but he knew that within the week it would groan under its epistolary burden. The very newspapers flung the fact at him as he opened them. Ready on Monday, Geoffrey Betton's new novel, Abundance, by the author of Diadems and Faggots. First edition of one hundred and fifty thousand already sold out. Order now. A hundred and fifty thousand volumes, and an average of three readers to each. Half a million of people would be reading him within a week, and every one of them would write to him, and their friends and relations would write too. He laid down the paper with a shudder. The two notes looked harmless enough, and the calligraphy of one was vaguely familiar. He opened the envelope and looked at the signature, Duncan Weiss. He had not seen the man in years. What on earth could Duncan Weiss have to say? He ran over the page and dropped it with a wondering exclamation, which the watchful Strett, re-entering, met by a tentative, Yes, sir? Uh, nothing, yes, that is. Betton picked up the note. There's a gentleman, a Mr. Vice, coming to see me at ten. Strett glanced at the clock. Yes, sir. You'll remember that ten was the hour you appointed for the secretaries to call, sir. Betton nodded. I'll see Mr. Vice first. My clothes, please. As he got into them, in the state of irritable hurry that had become almost chronic with him, he continued to think about Duncan Vice. They had seen a lot of each other for the few years after both had left Harvard the hard, happy years when Betton had been grinding at his business, and Vice, poor devil, trying to write. The novelist recalled his friend's attempts with a smile. Then the memory of one small volume came back to him. It was a novel, The Lifted Lamp. There was stuff in that, certainly. He remembered Vice's tossing it down on his table with a gesture of despair when it came back from the last publisher. 
Betton, taking it up indifferently, had sat riveted till daylight. When he ended, the impression was so strong that he said to himself, "'I'll tell Apthorne about it. I'll go and see him to-morrow.' His own secret literary yearnings gave him a passionate desire to champion Vice, to see him triumph over the ignorance and timidity of the publishers. Apthorne was the youngest of the Guild, still capable of opinions and the courage of them, a personal friend of Betton's, and, as it happened, the man afterward to become known as the privileged publisher of Diadems and Faggots. Unluckily, the next day something unexpected turned up, and Betton forgot about Vice and his manuscript. He continued to forget for a month, and then came a note from Vice, who was ill, and who wrote to ask what his friend had done. Betton did not like to say, I've done nothing, so he left the note unanswered, and vowed again, I'll see Apthorne. The following day he was called to the West on business, and was gone a month. When he came back there was another note from Vice, who was still ill and desperately hard up. I'll take anything for the book, if they'll advance me two hundred dollars. Betton, full of compunction, would gladly have advanced the sum himself, but he was hard up too, and could only swear inwardly, I'll write to Apthorne. Then he glanced again at the manuscript and reflected, No, there are things in it that need explaining. I'd better see him. Once he went so far as to telephone Apthorne, but the publisher was out. Then he finally and completely forgot. One Sunday he went to town, and on his return, rummaging among the papers on his desk, he missed the lifted lamp, which had been gathering dust there for half a year. What the deuce could have become of it? Betton spent a feverish hour in vainly increasing the disorder of his documents, and then bethought himself of calling the maid-servant, who first indignantly denied having touched anything. "'I can see that's true from the dust,' Betton scathingly interjected, and then mentioned with hauteur that a young lady had called in his absence, and had asked to be allowed to get a book. "'A lady? Did you let her come up?' "'She said somebody had sent her.' "'Vice, of course.' Vice had sent her for the manuscript. He was always mixed up with some woman, and it was just like him to send the girl of the moment to Betton's lodgings, with instructions to force the door in his absence. Vice had never been remarkable for delicacy. Betton, furious, glanced over his table, to see if any of his own effects were missing. One couldn't tell with the company Vice kept, and then dismissed the matter from his mind with a vague sense of magnanimity in doing so. He felt himself exonerated by Vice's conduct. The sense of magnanimity was still uppermost when the valet opened the door to announce, Mr. Vice, and Betton, a moment later, crossed the threshold of his pleasant library. His first thought was that the man facing him from the hearthrug was the very Duncan Vice of old, small, starved, bleached-looking, with the same sidelong movements, the same queer air of anemic truculence. Only he had grown shabbier and bald. Betton held out a hospitable hand. This is a good surprise. Glad you looked me up, my dear fellow. Vice's palm was damp and bony. He had always had a disagreeable hand. You got my note? You know what I've come for? he said. About the secretaryship? Sit down. Is that really serious? Betton lowered himself luxuriously into one of his vast maple armchairs. He had grown stouter in the last year, and the cushion behind him fitted comfortably into the crease of his nape. As he leaned back he caught sight of his image in the mirror between the windows, and reflected uneasily that Vice would not find him unchanged. 
serious vice rejoined why not aren't you oh perfectly betton laughed apologetically only well the fact is you may not understand what rubbish a secretary of mine would have to deal with in advertising for one i never imagined i didn't aspire to any one above the ordinary hack i'm the ordinary hack said vice dryly betton's affable gesture protested my dear fellow you see it's not business what i'm in now he continued with a laugh vice's thin lips seemed to form a noiseless isn't it which they instantly transposed into the audible reply i inferred from your advertisement that you wanted someone to relieve you in your literary work dictation shorthand that kind of thing vice looked slightly surprised i should be glad of the job he then said betton began to feel a vague embarrassment he had supposed that such a proposal would be instantly rejected it would be only for an hour or two a day if you're doing any writing of your own he threw out interrogatively no i've given all that up i'm in an office now business but it doesn't take all my time or pay enough to keep me alive in that case my dear fellow if you could come every morning but it's mostly awful bosh you know betton again broke off with growing awkwardness vice glanced at him humorously what you want me to write well that depends betton sketched the obligatory smile but i was thinking of the letters you'll have to answer letters about my books you know i've another one appearing next week and i want to be beforehand now damn the flood before it swamps me have you any idea of the deluge of stuff that people write to a successful novelist as betton spoke he saw a tinge of red on vice's thin cheek and his own reflected it in a richer glow of shame i, I mean i mean he stammered helplessly no i haven't said vice but it will be awfully jolly finding out there was a pause groping and desperate on betton's part sardonically calm on his visitors you-you've given up writing altogether betton continued yes we've changed places as it were vice paused but about these letters you dictate the answers lord no that's the reason why i said i wanted somebody uh, well used to writing i don't want to have anything to do with them not a thing you'll have to answer them as if they were written to you betton pulled himself up again and rising in confusion jerked open one of the drawers of his writing-table here this kind of rubbish he said tossing a packet of letters on to vice's knee oh you keep them do you said vice simply i well some of them a few of the funniest only vice slipped off the band and began to open the letters while he was glancing over them betton again caught his own reflection in the glass and asked himself what impression he had made on his visitor it occurred to him for the first time that his high-coloured well-fed person presented the image of commercial rather than intellectual achievement he did not look like his own idea of the author of diadems and faggots and he wondered why vice laid the letters aside i think i can do it if you'll give me a notion of the tone i'm to take the tone yes that is if i'm to sign your name oh of course i expect you to sign for me as for the tone say just what you'd well say all you can without encouraging them to answer vice rose from his seat i could submit a few specimens he suggested oh as to that you always wrote better than i do said betton handsomely i've never had this kind of thing to write 
when do you wish me to begin vyse inquired ignoring the tribute the book's out on monday the deluge will begin about three days after will you turn up on thursday at this hour betton held his hand out with real heartiness it was great luck for me your striking that advertisement don't be too harsh with my correspondence i owe them something for having brought us together section two the deluge began punctually on the thursday and vyse arriving as punctually had an impressive pile of letters to attack betton on his way to the park for a ride came into the library smoking the cigarette of indolence to look over his secretary's shoulder how many of em twenty good lord it's going to be worse than diadems i've just had my first quiet breakfast in two years time to read the papers and loaf how i used to dread the sight of my letter-box now i shan't know i have one he leaned over vyse's chair and the secretary handed him a letter here's rather an exceptional one lady evidently i thought you might want to answer it yourself exceptional betton ran over the mauve pages and tossed them down why my dear man i get hundreds like that you'll have to be pretty short with her or she'll send her photograph he clapped vyse on the shoulder and turned away humming a tune stay to luncheon he called back gaily from the threshold after luncheon vyse insisted on showing a few of his answers to the first batch of letters if i've struck the note i won't bother you again he urged and betton groaningly consented my dear fellow they're beautiful too beautiful i'll be let in for a correspondence with every one of these people vyse at this meditated for a while above a blank sheet all right how's this he said after another interval of rapid writing betton glanced over the page by george by george won't she see it he exulted between fear and rapture it's wonderful how little people see said vyse reassuringly the letters continued to pour in for several weeks after the appearance of abundance for five or six blissful days betton did not even have his mail brought to him trusting to vyse to single out his personal correspondence and to deal with the rest according to their agreement during those days he luxuriated in a sense of wild and lawless freedom then gradually he began to feel the need of fresh restraints to break and learned that the zest of liberty lies in the escape from specific obligations at first he was conscious only of a vague hunger but in time the craving resolved into a shamefaced desire to see his letters after all i hated them only because i had to answer them and he told vyse carelessly that he wished all his letters submitted to him before the secretary answered them at first he pushed aside those beginning i have just laid down abundance after a third reading or every day for the last month i have been telephoning my bookseller to know when your novel would be out but little by little the freshness of his interest revived and even this stereotyped homage began to arrest his eye at last came a day when he read all the letters from the first word to the last as he had done when diadems and faggots appeared it was really a pleasure to read them now that he was relieved of the burden of replying his new relation to his correspondence had the glow of a love affair unchilled by the contingency of marriage one day it struck him that the letters were coming in more slowly and in smaller numbers certainly there had been more of a rush when diadems and faggots came out betton began to wonder if vyse were exercising an unauthorized discrimination 
and keeping back the communications he deemed least important. This sudden conjecture carried the novelist straight to his library, where he found Vyse bending over the writing-table with his usual inscrutable pale smile. But once there, Betton hardly knew how to frame his question, and blundered into an inquiry for a missing invitation. "'There's a note, a personal note, I ought to have had this morning. Sure you haven't kept it back by mistake among the others?' Vyse laid down his pen. "'The others? But I never keep back any.' Betton had foreseen the answer. "'Not even the worst twaddle about my book?' he suggested lightly, pushing the papers about. "'Nothing. I understood you wanted to go over them all first. "'Well, perhaps it's safer,' Betton conceded, as if the idea were new to him. With an embarrassed hand he continued to turn over the letters at Vyse's elbow. "'Those are yesterday,' said the secretary. "'Here are today's,' he added, pointing to a meagre trio. "'Hm! Only these?' Betton took them and looked them over lingeringly. "'I don't see what the deuce that chap means about the first part of Abundance certainly justifying the title. Do you?' Vyse was silent, and the novelist continued irritably. "'Damn cheek his writing if he doesn't like the book. Who cares what he thinks about it anyhow?' And his morning ride was embittered by the discovery that it was unexpectedly disagreeable to have Vyse read any letters which did not express unqualified praise of his books. He began to fancy there was a latent rancour, a kind of baffled sneer under Vyse's manner, and he decided to return to the practice of having his mail brought straight to his room. In that way he could edit the letters before his secretary saw them. Vyse made no comment on the change and Betton was reduced to wondering whether his imperturbable composure were the mask of complete indifference or of a watchful jealousy. The latter view being more agreeable to his employer's self-esteem, the next step was to conclude that Vyse had not forgotten the episode of the lifted lamp, and would naturally take a vindictive joy in any unfavourable judgments passed on his rival's work. This did not simplify the situation, for there was no denying that unfavourable criticisms preponderated in Betton's correspondence. Abundance was neither meeting with the unrestricted welcome of diadems and faggots, nor enjoying the alternative of an animated controversy. It was simply found dull, and its readers said so in language not too tactfully tempered by regretful comparisons with its predecessor. To withhold unfavourable comments from Vyse was, therefore, to make it appear that correspondence about the book had died out, and its author, mindful of his unguarded predictions, found this even more embarrassing. The simplest solution would be to get rid of Vyse, and to this end Betton began to address his energies. One evening, finding himself unexpectedly disengaged, he asked Vyse to dine. It had occurred to him that in the course of an after-dinner chat he might delicately hint his feeling that the work he had offered his friend was unworthy of so accomplished a hand. Vyse surprised him by a momentary hesitation. "'I may not have time to dress.' Betton stared. "'What's the odds? We'll dine here, and as late as you like.' Vyse thanked him, and appeared punctually at eight, in all the shabbiness of his daily wear. He looked paler and more shyly truculent than usual, and Betton, from the height of his florid stature, said to himself, with a sudden professional instinct for type. He might be an agent of something, a chap who carries deadly secrets. Vice, it was to appear, 
did carry a deadly secret but one less perilous to society than to himself he was simply poor inexcusably irremediably poor everything failed him had always failed him whatever he put his hand to went to bits this was the confession that reluctantly yet with a kind of white-lipped bravado he flung at betton in answer to the latter's tentative suggestion that really the letter-answering job wasn't worth bothering him with a thing that any typewriter could do if you mean you're paying me more than it's worth i'll take less vyse rushed out after a pause oh my dear fellow betton protested flushing what do you mean then don't i answer the letters as you want them answered betton anxiously stroked his silken ankle you do it beautifully too beautifully i mean what i say the work's not worthy of you i'm ashamed to ask you oh hang shame vyse interrupted do you know why i said i shouldn't have time to dress to-night because i haven't any evening clothes as a matter of fact i haven't much but the clothes i stand in one thing after another's gone against me all the infernal ingenuities of chance it's been a slow chinese torture the kind where they keep you alive to have more fun killing you he straightened himself with a sudden blush oh i'm all right now getting on capitally but i'm still walking rather a narrow plank and if i do your work well enough if i take your idea betton stared into the fire without answering he knew next to nothing of vyse's history of the mischance or mismanagement that had brought him with his brains and his training to so unlikely a pass but a pang of compunction shot through him as he remembered the manuscript of the lifted lamp gathering dust on his table for half a year not that it would have made any earthly difference since he's evidently never been able to get the thing published but this reflection did not wholly console betton and he found it impossible at the moment to tell vyse that his services were not needed section three during the ensuing weeks the letters grew fewer and fewer and betton foresaw the approach of the fatal day when his secretary in common decency would have to say i can't draw my pay for doing nothing what a triumph for vyse the thought was intolerable and betton cursed his weakness in not having dismissed the fellow before such a possibility arose if i tell him i've no use for him now he'll see straight through it of course and then hang it he looks so poor this consideration came after the other but betton in rearranging them put it first because he thought it looked better there and also because he immediately perceived its value in justifying a plan of action that was beginning to take shape in his mind poor devil i'm damned if i don't do it for him said betton sitting down at his desk three or four days later he sent word to vyse that he didn't care to go over the letters any longer and that they would once more be carried directly to the library the next time he lounged in on his way to his morning ride he found his secretary's pen in active motion a lot to-day vyse told him cheerfully his tone irritated betton it had the inane optimism of the physician reassuring a discouraged patient oh lord i thought it was almost over groaned the novelist no they've just got their second wind here's one from a chicago publisher never heard the name offering you thirty per cent on your next novel with an advance royalty of twenty thousand and here's a chap who wants to syndicate it for a bunch of sunday papers big offer too that's from ann arbor and this oh this one's funny he held up a small scented sheet to betton who made no movement to receive it funny why's it funny he growled 
well it's from a girl a lady and she thinks she's the only person who understands abundance has the clue to it says she's never seen a book so misrepresented by the critics <laughs> that is good betton agreed with too loud a laugh this one's from a lady too married woman says she's misunderstood and would like to correspond oh lord said betton what are you looking at he added sharply as vyse continued to bend his unblinking gaze on the letters i was only thinking i'd never seen such short letters from women neither one fills the first page well what of that queried betton vyse reflected i'd like to meet a woman like that he said wearily and betton laughed again the letters continued to pour in and there could be no farther question of dispensing with vyse's services but one morning about three weeks later the latter asked for a word with his employer and betton on entering the library found his secretary with half a dozen documents spread out before him what's up queried betton with a touch of impatience vyse was attentively scanning the outspread letters i don't know can't make it out his voice had a faint note of embarrassment do you remember a note signed hester macklin that came three or four weeks ago married misunderstood western army post wanted to correspond betton seemed to grope among his memories then he assented vaguely a short note vyse went on the whole story in half a page the shortness struck me so much and the directness that i wrote her wrote her in my own name i mean in your own name betton stood amazed then he broke into a groan good lord vyse you're incorrigible the secretary pulled his thin moustache with a nervous laugh if you mean i'm an ass you're right look here he held out an envelope stamped with the words dead letter office my effusion has come back to me marked unknown there's no such person at the address she gave you betton seemed for an instant to share his secretary's embarrassment then he burst into an uproarious laugh hoax was it that's rough on you old fellow vyse shrugged his shoulders yes but the interesting question is why on earth didn't your answer come back too my answer the official one the one i wrote in your name if she's unknown what's become of that betton stared at him with eyes wrinkled by amusement perhaps she hadn't disappeared then vyse disregarded the conjecture look here i believe all these letters are a hoax he broke out betton stared at him with a face that turned slowly red and angry what are you talking about all what letters these i've spread out here i've been comparing them and i believe they're all written by one man burton's redness turned to a purple that made his ruddy moustaches seem pale what the devil are you driving at he asked well just look at it vyse persisted still bent over the letters i've been studying them carefully those that have come within the last two or three weeks and there's a queer likeness in the writing of some of them the g's are all like corkscrews and the same phrases keep recurring the ann arbor newsagent uses the same expressions as the president of the girls college at euphorbia maine betton laughed aren't the critics always groaning over the shrinkage of the national vocabulary of course we all use the same expressions yes said vyse obstinately but how about using the same g's betton laughed again but vyse continued without heeding him 
Look here, Betton. Could Strett have written them? Strett, Betton roared. Strett! He threw himself into his armchair to shake out his mirth at greater ease. I'll tell you why. Strett always posts all my answers. He comes in for them every day before I leave. He posted the letter to the misunderstood party, the letter from you that the dead letter office didn't return. I posted my own letter to her, and that came back. A measurable silence followed the omission of this ingenious conjecture. Then Betton observed with gentle irony, "'Extremely neat, and of course it's no business of yours to supply any valid motive for this remarkable attention on my valet's part.' Vyse cast on him a slanting glance. "'If you've found that human conduct's generally based on valid motives—' "'Well, outside of madhouses, it's supposed to be not quite incalculable.' Vyse had another odd smile under his thin moustache. Every house is a madhouse at some time or another. Betton rose with a careless shake of the shoulders. This one will be if I talk to you much longer, he said, moving away with a laugh. Section 4 Betton did not for one moment believe that Vyse suspected the valet of having written the letters. Why the devil don't he say out what he thinks? He was always a tortuous chap, he grumbled inwardly. The sense of being held under the lens of Vyse's mute scrutiny became more and more exasperating. Betton, by this time, had squared his shoulders to the fact that abundance was a failure with the public, a confessed and glaring failure. The press told him so openly, and his friends emphasized the fact by their circumlocutions and evasions. Betton minded it a good deal more than he had expected, but not nearly as much as he minded Vyse's knowing it. That remained the central twinge in his diffused discomfort, and the problem of getting rid of his secretary once more engaged him. He had set aside all sentimental pretexts for retaining Vyse, but a practical argument replaced him. If I ship him now, he'll think it's because I'm ashamed to have him see that I'm not getting any more letters. For the letters had ceased again, almost abruptly, since Vyse had hazarded the conjecture that they were the product of Strett's devoted pen. Betton had reverted only once to the subject, to ask ironically a day or two later, Is Strett writing to me as much as ever? And on Vyse's replying with a neutral headshake, had added with a laugh, If you suspect him, you might as well think I write the letters myself. There are very few to-day, said Vyse, with his irritating evasiveness, and Betton rejoined squarely, Oh, they'll stop soon. The book's a failure. A few mornings later he felt a rush of shame at his own tergiversations, and stalked into the library with Vyse's sentence on his tongue. Vyse started back with one of his anemic blushes. I was hoping you'd be in. I wanted to speak to you. There have been no letters the last day or two, he explained. Betton drew a quick breath of relief. The man had some sense of decency then. He meant to dismiss himself. "'I told you so, my dear fellow. The book's a flat failure,' he said, almost gaily. Vyse made a deprecating gesture. "'I don't know that I should regard the absence of letters as the ultimate test, but I wanted to ask you if there isn't something else I could do on the days when there's no writing.' He turned his glance toward the book-lined walls. "'Don't you want your library catalogued?' he asked insidiously. "'Had it done last year, thanks,' Betton glanced away from Vyse's face. It was piteous how he needed the job. 
i see of course this is just a temporary lull at the letters they'll begin again as they did before the people who read carefully read slowly you haven't heard yet what they think betton felt a rush of puerile joy at the suggestion actually he hadn't thought of that there was a big second crop after diadems and faggots he mused aloud of course wait and see said vyse confidently the letters in fact began again more gradually and in smaller numbers but their quality was different as vyse had predicted and in two cases betton's correspondence not content to compress into one rapid communication the thoughts inspired by his work developed their views in a succession of really remarkable letters one of the writers was a professor in a western college the other was a girl in florida in their language their point of view their reasons for appreciating abundance they differed almost diametrically but this only made the unanimity of their approval the more striking the rush of correspondence evoked by betton's earlier novel had produced nothing so personal so exceptional as these communications he had gulped the praise of diadems and faggots as undiscriminatingly as it was offered now he knew for the first time the subtler pleasures of the palate he tried to feign indifference even to himself and to vise he made no sign but gradually he felt a desire to know what his secretary thought of the letters and above all what he was saying in reply to them and he resented acutely the possibility of vyse's starting one of his clandestine correspondences with the girl in florida vyse's notorious lack of delicacy had never been more vividly present to betton's imagination and he made up his mind to answer the letters himself he would keep vyse on of course there were other communications that the secretary could attend to and if necessary betton would invent an occupation he cursed his stupidity in having betrayed the fact that his books were already catalogued vyse showed no surprise when betton announced his intention of dealing personally with the two correspondents who showed so flattering a reluctance to take their leave but betton immediately read a criticism in his lack of comment and put forth on a note of challenge after all one must be decent vyse looked at him with an evanescent smile you'll have to explain that you didn't write the first answers betton halted well i-i more or less dictated them didn't i oh virtually they're yours of course you think i can put it that way why not the secretary absently drew an arabesque on the blotting-pad of course i'll keep it up longer if you write yourself he suggested betton blushed but faced the issue hang it all i shan't be sorry they interest me they're remarkable letters and vice without observation returned to his writings the spring that year was delicious to betton his college professor continued to address him tersely but cogently at fixed intervals and twice a week eight serried pages came from florida there were other letters too he had the solace of feeling that at last abundance was making its way was reaching the people who as vice said read slowly because they read intelligently but welcome as were all these proofs of his restored authority they were but the background of his happiness his life revolved for the moment about the personality of his two chief correspondents the professor's letters satisfied his craving for intellectual recognition and the satisfaction he felt in them proved how completely he had lost faith in himself 
he blushed to think that his opinion of his work had been swayed by the shallow judgments of a public whose taste he despised was it possible that he had allowed himself to think less well of abundance because it was not to the taste of the average novel-reader such false humility was less excusable than the crudest appetite for praise it was ridiculous to try to do conscientious work if one's self-esteem were at the mercy of popular judgments all this the professor's letters delicately and indirectly conveyed to betton with the result that the author of abundance began to recognize in it the ripest flower of his genius but if the professor understood his book the girl in florida understood him and betton was fully alive to the superior qualities of discernment which this process implied for his lovely correspondent his novel was but the starting-point the pretext of her discourse he himself was her real object and he had the delicious sense as their exchange of thoughts proceeded that she was interested in abundance because of its author rather than in the author because of his book of course she laid stress on the fact that his ideas were the object of her contemplation but betton's agreeable person had permitted him some insight into the incorrigible subjectiveness of female judgments and he was pleasantly aware from the lady's tone that she guessed him to be neither old nor ridiculous and suddenly he wrote to ask if he might see her the answer was long in coming betton fumed at the delay watched wondered and fretted then he received the one word impossible he wrote back more urgently and awaited the reply with increasing eagerness a certain shyness had kept him from once more modifying the instructions regarding his mail and strett still carried the letters directly to vyse the hour when he knew they were passing under the latter's eyes was now becoming intolerable to betton and it was a profound relief when the secretary suddenly advised of his father's illness asked permission to absent himself for a fortnight Vyse departed just after Betton had dispatched to Florida his second missive of entreaty, and for ten days he tasted the furtive joy of a first perusal of his letters. The answer from Florida was not among them, but Betton said to himself, she's thinking it over, and delay in that light seemed favourable. So charming, in fact, was this phase of sentimental suspense that he felt a start of resentment when a telegram apprised him one morning that Vyse would return to his post that day. Betton had slept later than usual, and springing out of bed with the telegram in his hand, he learned from the clock that his secretary was due in half an hour. He reflected that the morning's mail must long since be in, and too impatient to wait for its appearance with his breakfast tray, he threw on a dressing-gown and went to the library. There lay the letters, half a dozen of them, but his eye flew to one envelope, and as he tore it open, a warm wave rocked his heart. The letter was dated a few days after its writer must have received his own. It had all the qualities of grace and insight to which his unknown friend had accustomed him, but it contained no allusion, however indirect, to the special purport of his appeal. Even a vanity less ingenious than Betton's might have read in the lady's silence one of the most familiar motions of consent. But the smile provoked by this inference faded, as he turned to his other letters, for the uppermost bore the subscription, Dead Letter Office, and the document that fell from it was his own last letter from Florida. 
Betton studied the ironic unknown for an appreciable sense of time. Then he broke into a laugh. He had suddenly recalled Vyse's similar experience with Hester Macklin, and the light he was able to throw on that obscure episode was searching enough to penetrate all the dark corners of his own adventure. He felt a rush of heat to the ears. Catching sight of himself in the glass, he saw a red, ridiculous, congested countenance, and dropped into a chair to hide it between flushed fists. He was roused by the opening of the door, and Vyse appeared on the threshold. "'Oh, I beg pardon. You're ill,' said the secretary. Betton's only answer was an inarticulate murmur of derision. Then he pushed forward the letter with the imprint of the dead letter office. "'Look at that!' he jeered. Vyse peered at the envelope, and turned it over slowly in his hands. Betton's eyes, fixed on him, saw his face decompose like a substance touched by some powerful acid. He clung to the envelope as if to gain time. "'It's from the young lady you've been writing to at Swayze Springs?' he asked at length. "'It's from the young lady I've been writing to at Swayze Springs.' "'Well, I suppose she's gone away,' continued Vyse, rebuilding his countenance rapidly. "'Yes, and in a community numbering perhaps a hundred and seventy-five souls, including the dogs and chickens, the local post-office is so ignorant of her movements that my letter has to be sent to the dead letter office.' Vyse meditated on this. Then he laughed in turn. "'After all, the same thing happened to me, with Hester Macklin, I mean,' he recalled sheepishly. "'Just so,' said Betton, bringing down his clenched fist on the table. "'Just so,' he repeated in italics. He caught his secretary's glance and held it with his own for a moment. Then he dropped it, as in pity one releases something scared and squirming. "'The very day my letter was returned from Swayze Springs, she wrote me this from there,' he said, holding up the last Florida missive. "'Ah, that's funny,' said Vyse, with a damp forehead. "'Yes, it's funny, it's funny,' said Betton. He leaned back, his hands in his pockets, staring up at the ceiling and noticing a crack in the cornice. Vyse, at the corner of the writing-table, waited. "'Shall I get to work?' he began, after a silence measurable by minutes. Betton's glance descended from the cornice. "'I've got your seat, haven't I?' he said, rising and moving away from the table. Vyse, with a quick gleam of relief, slipped into the vacant chair, and began to stir about vaguely among the papers. "'How's your father?' Betton asked from the hearth. "'Oh, better, better, thank you. He'll pull out of it.' "'But you had a sharp scare for a day or two. "'Yes, it was touch and go when I was there.' Another pause, while Vyse began to classify the letters. "'And, I suppose,' Betton continued in a steady tone, "'your anxiety made you forget your usual precautions, whatever they were, about this Florida correspondence, and before you'd had time to prevent it, the Swayze post-office blundered?' Vyse lifted his head with a quick movement. "'What do you mean?' he asked, pushing his chair back. "'I mean that you saw I couldn't live without flattery, and that you've been ladling it out to me to earn your keep. Vyse sat motionless and shrunken, digging the blotting-pad with his pen. "'What on earth are you driving at?' he repeated. "'Though why the deuce,' Betton continued in the same steady tone, "'you should need to do this kind of work when you've got such faculties at your service. Those letters were magnificent, my dear fellow. Why in the world don't you write novels instead of writing to other people about them?' 
Vyse straightened himself with an effort. "'What are you talking about, Betton? Why the devil do you think I wrote those letters?' Betton held back his answer with a brooding face. "'Because I wrote Hester Macklin's to myself.' Vyse sat stock-still, without the least outcry of wonder. "'Well,' he finally said in a low tone, and because you found me out you see you can't even feign surprise because you saw through it at a glance knew at once that the letters were faked and when you'd foolishly put me on my guard by pointing out to me that they were a clumsy forgery and had then suddenly guessed that i was the forger you drew the natural inference that i had to have popular approval or at least had to make you think i had it you saw that to me the worst thing about the failure of the book was having you know it was a failure and so you applied your superior, your immeasurably superior, abilities to carrying on the humbug and deceiving me as I'd tried to deceive you. And you did it so successfully that I don't see why the devil you haven't made your fortune writing novels. Vyse remained silent, his head slightly bent under the mounting tide of Betton's denunciation. The way you differentiated your people, characterized them, avoided my stupid mistake of making the women's letters too short and logical of letting my different correspondents use the same expressions the amount of ingenuity and art you wasted on it i swear vyse i'm sorry that damned post-office went back on you betton went on piling up the waves of his irony but at this height they suddenly paused drew back on themselves and began to recede before the spectacle of vyse's pale distress something warm and emotional in betton's nature a lurking kindliness perhaps for any one who tried to soothe and smooth his writhing ego softened his eye as it rested on the drooping figure of his secretary look here vyse i'm not sorry not altogether sorry this has happened he moved slowly across the room and laid a friendly palm on vyse's shoulder in a queer illogical way it evens up things as it were I did you a shabby turn once years ago, oh, out of sheer carelessness, of course, about that novel of yours I promised to give to Apthorn. If I had given it, it might not have made any difference. I'm not sure it wasn't too good for success. But anyhow, I dare say you thought my personal influence might have helped you, might at least have got you a quicker hearing. Perhaps you thought it was because the thing was so good that I kept it back, that I felt some nasty jealousy of your superiority. I swear to you, it wasn't that. I clean forgot it. And one day when I came home it was gone. You'd sent and taken it. And I've always thought since, you might have owed me a grudge, and not unjustly. So this, this business of the letters, the sympathy you've shown, for I suppose it is sympathy? Vyse startled and checked him by a queer crackling laugh. It's not sympathy, broke in Betton, the moisture drying out of his voice. He withdrew his hand from Vice's shoulder. "'What is it, then? The joy of uncovering my nakedness? An eye for an eye? Is that it?' Vyse rose from his seat, and with a mechanical gesture swept into a heap all the letters he had sorted. "'I'm stone-broke and wanted to keep my job. That's what it is,' he said wearily. End of chapter 5